Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Jonathan Brent, author of Stalin's Last Crime, The Doctor's Plot, which, as we will see, covers a precariously dangerous period in Russian Jewish history. And of course, before we start in the aftermath of the recent brutal massacre here in Israel, we continue to pray for the speedy release of all hostages and for the total success and protection of our IDF soldiers. Um, and again, by way of introduction, Professor Brent holds a BA from Columbia University and an MA and PhD from the University of Chicago. Uh, Professor Brent has held senior editorial positions at Yale University Press and Northwestern University Press. And it was at Yale University Press that Professor Brent was the founding editor of the Stalin Digital Archive Project. Professor Brent currently is the visiting Alger Hiss Professor of History and Literature at Bard College. And Professor Brent currently serves as the CEO and executive director of the Evo Institute for Jewish Research. Professors, Professor, Bard's, uh, Professor Brent's works include uh, Inside the Stalin Archives, Discovery the New Russia. And as we mentioned, today we will be discussing Stalin's Last Crime, The Doctor's Plot, and it is just a fascinating page turner uh, and urge all our visitors and, and listeners, uh, viewers and listeners to go online as I did and uh, order the book, Amazon Free Delivery, almost everywhere in the world. Uh, so again, uh, Professor Brent, thank you so much um, for joining us today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Uh, just to get started, a little bit of background, the overall uh, state of Russian Jewry prior to World War II, we have the Russian Revolution, and now uh, before World War II, where are we? Where does Russian Jewry stand? Well, I, I think that uh, the Jewish community, if you can speak of a Jewish community, in fact, there were many different Jewish communities as there are today. There were communists, there were socialists, Bundists, uh, Zionists, and of course, religious, Orthodox, uh, traditional Jews. There were atheists. There were Jews who wanted to go to America. There were assimilationists who just wanted to forget everything and, and merge with, with Polish or Russian society or lose their identities in the United States altogether. Uh, but uh, I think what characterizes the Jewish world, if we could put it that way, as opposed to the Jewish community, is the fractured nature of uh, uh, it, its fractured nature in, in all of these, these different elements. And uh, yes, there were many Jews in the Communist Party, but in proportion to the total number of Jews in Russia and the Pale of Settlement, it was a tiny minority. Uh, however, being uh, as they were educated for the most part and uh, uh, very active, they rose to senior positions. And so at the, at the outset of the revolution, 
there was Zinoviev and Kamenev and Trotsky and others in senior leadership in the Bolshevik party, um, as well as the head of the Mensheviks, <clears throat> Julius Martov and many others. Uh, the Mensheviks actually had uh, more Jews in it than the Bolsheviks. So it was a big, you know, mishmash, pretty much as we have today. Okay. Um, as as World War II unfolds and the Soviet Union uh, is in the fight for their life uh, against uh, the fascists, um, what was the Jewish anti-fascist committee and why was it set up with the approval uh, of the Soviet leadership? Mm -hmm. uh, each of the... Um... Each of the national minorities uh, uh, developed an anti-fascist committee. So the the Jewish anti-fascist committee was simply the Jewish uh, subsection uh, of uh, the the national panoply of the Soviet Union at the time. However. Stalin recognized, uh, as he had to recognize, uh, that many of the Jews of the Soviet Union had kin uh, who had relatives, had friends, relations of all sorts in the United States of America, in Western Europe, etc. And so this particular subset of the uh, various national anti-fascist committees could be of a special importance to him in terms of turning American opinion toward the war, uh, as well as raising valuable dollars for the Soviet war effort. And so this is what gave the, uh, the Jewish anti-fascist committee, the chairman of which was Solomon Mikhoyles, uh, the great actor of the Moscow Yiddish theater, the head of the Moscow Yiddish theater at the time, uh, it's, it's special status. And in the end, it also gave it, it's it, the, 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 having this position was also dangerous. It was always dangerous to stand out in Stalin's Russia. And so on the one hand, it, it was a, a great honor, and that honor came with all of the vulnerabilities and threats that any such honor would have in Stalin's Russia. Got it. Uh, you had just mentioned, of course, Solomon uh, Michals. Um, again, who was he and what happened to him? And I, I know this is there's a lot of chronology here until we get to the doctor's plot, and I know it's it's a it's a web of intrigue. And, you know, we'll just try to figure it out step by step how it kind of in, unraveled. In, in 1943, he goes to uh, America with Yitzhak Pfeffer, the poet. Uh, and he meets with Einstein and he meets with uh, Sholem Aleichem's uh, son-in-law. And he, he meets with many dignitaries from coast to coast. And he raises a huge amount of money for the Soviet war effort through the uh, Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. And he is honored 
uh, uh, when he comes home uh, by Stalin, uh, he is also a very great actor and had been the head of the uh, Moscow Yiddish Theater uh, for many years, uh, developed uh, many important roles such as uh, the Jewish King Lear uh, and and numerous others. It was world famous, world famous theater. Uh, and he he was in movies and he 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 was just a generally very vivacious forward looking man his his concept for the moscow yiddish theater was our job is not to put a jew on the stage our job is to put a human being on the stage who is a jew and so his entire effort was a universalistic one. Uh, and that's the way he saw being Jewish. It was an essential element of who he was, but within that was a universal humanity, which which really made him a very special human being and actor and, and leader of the Jewish anti-fascist committee. There was not a, a bone in his body that was anti-Soviet. Um, he was entirely um, committed to the Soviet war effort as were so many other Jews at the time. Vasily Grossman is a good example. Uh, Ilya Ehrenberg, is another uh, obvious example of Jews who were galvanized by this war effort and gave everything they had to it. Um, and then uh, Mechoyles is assassinated. Uh, we now know uh, on direct orders by Stalin in January 1948 uh, in Minsk. He's uh, run over by a truck. His body this is after the war. The war is over. After the war. Okay. After the war. And uh, at a point when uh, there is talk about uh, a Jewish state. Israel is on the horizon. And uh, to put this in some perspective, the the what was going on in Stalin's brain. Uh, Stalin uh, was a true product of Leninist Bolshevism. He had been a colleague of Lenin's from before the revolution. He was in charge of the nationalities section of the Bolshevik party. In other words, he is the one who developed policies for all of the nationalities and the Jews were considered a nationality, not a religion. And Stalin feared many things uh, and hated many things. And his hatred of the Jews has been, I think, uh, uh, put out of proportion actually, uh, because he hated the Poles probably just as much, if not more, 
then he hated the Jews. Uh, and he hated the Germans, of course. He hated everybody. Uh, he had members of his own family uh, killed in, in Georgia um, and suppressed Georgian nationalism. But the one thing that he feared the most was nationalist organization within Russia that could threaten Soviet, uh, uh, Soviet power. And so after the war, when the state of Israel becomes a, uh, is, is on the horizon, and you have to remember that the Soviet Union voted for the state of Israel, they voted, I think they were the first vote for the state of Israel. And they did this not because they loved Jews, but because they wanted to block British interests in the Middle East. Nevertheless, the threat of Jewish nationalism was in his head, and he worried about it. And here is Solomon Michoels, who is a hero of the Soviet Union, and everybody knows him. Furthermore, his real name is not Michoels, it's Vovsi. And he is a, uh, I believe, cousin to Miron Vovsi who is the doctor of the Red Army. They have relation, relations all over the world. And uh, it is worrisome to Stalin that uh, Jews may begin to think that Israel is their homeland as opposed to the Soviet Union that they will organize on behalf of Israel and what that eventually means by, uh, by late summer of 1948 is that they will gravitate toward the West, they will gravitate toward the United States of America, the bitterest enemy of the Soviet Union. And so Mikhoyl's without doing anything, has now gone from hero of the Soviet Union to potential enemy of the Soviet Union. And as head of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, he wielded a great deal of influence. Um, <clears throat> moving along on, on the timeline a little bit, um, who was Lydia Tomashuk? And what did she allege and when did that happen? Lydia Timoshuk uh, was the head of cardiology of the Kremlin hospital system. The Kremlin hospital system was not a single hospital like Mount Sinai Hospital uh, in New York City or Sloan Kettering in New York City. It was a whole system of hospitals within Russia that... Uh, functioned to take care of the nomenclatura, that is to say, the, the higher-ups in the Soviet bureaucracy. And so she had a very important role. She was head of cardiology. Uh, initially, she had nothing to do at all with the doctor's plot. The way it worked was this. A very important member of the Central Committee fell out of favor with Stalin. 
his name was uh, Zhdanov. Um, uh, Alexander Zhdanov. And he was the head of uh, the Leningrad party. And Stalin distrusted Leningrad for all kinds of reasons, uh, going back to Trotsky. Uh, but uh, Zhdanov was actually his favorite for many years. Zhdanov uh, had displaced Molotov as the number two man in the in in Stalin's uh, party. Uh, he gave important speeches uh, about uh, the uh, at the end of World War II, uh, outlining the terms of the Cold War. Uh, in Poland, he is the one who set cultural policy. Uh, he was educated. He could play the piano for Stalin at the dacha, at Stalin's dacha. He would get drunk with Stalin. And furthermore, his son, Yuri, eventually marries Stalin's daughter, which is kind of an arranged marriage after Zhdanov's death. But Zhdanov falls out of favor with Stalin. And in punishment, Stalin sends him to get well uh, for his bad heart uh, to a health resort uh, called Valdai. And initially, the young uh, electrocardiogram technician who comes to Valdai to take care of Zhdanov, uh, Sophia Karpai, who is Jewish, uh, takes the EKG and she finds all kinds of irregularities in it which she reports dutifully to the doctors and which the doctors ignore. Fine. Uh, that's in July of 1948. Um, in August of 1948, Zhdanov experiences a very severe cardiac episode, which to this day remains a little mysterious. We have all, we have the EKG. I've shown it to experts uh, at Yale and elsewhere. And they all say to me, it, actually, it's not a heart attack, but it's something like a heart attack. Uh, and we don't need to get into the details of that. But in any case, Timashuk at that point comes to Valdai. Who sent her? Why she came at exactly that time is unknown. It's undoubtedly a matter of uh, some kind of operation within the KGB, because we now know that she was also a KGB informant. Anyway, she comes to Valdai, and she sees exactly what Sophia Karpai witnessed, which is the doctors were ignoring the results of the EKG. And her EKG showed something even more potentially dangerous than what Sophia Karpai's did. And she goes to the doctors and she tells them that her EKG has shown that uh, Zhdanov experienced a heart attack. The doctors dispute this. And they, de de uh, they, they uh, e essentially deride her and say, how dare you make a diagnosis? You're not anything more than you know, an EKG technician. What do you know? You don't see the whole picture and so on and so on and so on and so forth. And in her frustration, she then writes a note, a very important note on the 29th 
of August to, not to Stalin, but to the head of the Kremlin guards, the, uh, a man by the name of Vlasic. And she writes to him that, uh, actually, I'm sorry, she writes it to Abakumov. And she writes, uh, who is the head of the, the KGB, the NKVD at the time. She says that the doctors have incorrectly diagnosed uh, the situation and are therefore putting Zhdanov's life in danger. This letter that she writes is immediately sent to Moscow. Vlasic gets it. He gives it to Abakumov, who is the head of, of the NKVD or the KGB. And Abakumov affixes a note to it of explanation that this is a note from Lydia Timoshuk, who writes X, Y, and Z about Comrade Zhdanov, and he puts it on Stalin's desk. Stalin reads it. And he signs it with his name at the bottom of the letter. And he writes underneath it into the archive. Which means basically file it and don't do anything about it. Now, you have to understand one thing. This is the second most important person in the Soviet Union. who is, and, and Stalin is being told that the doctors have misdiagnosed his illness and some urgent action needs to be taken. I cannot imagine that if this happened in Israel or if it happened in the Uni in the United States of America, that the president would do nothing whatsoever about it. But that's what happened. The consequence of this is that two days later, Zhdanov dies of a massive heart attack. And at this point, Timoshuk writes another letter in which she accuses the doctors actually of, uh, of, of uh, abetting the process. She never accuses them of murdering Zhdanov, though that's eventually the charge that is, is uh, attributed to her. But she says that the doctors have, have uh, worked to uh, uh, help uh, uh, the 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 progress of his disease and uh and she cannot understand why stalin does nothing so that's lydia timoshuk she is then thrown out of the kremlin hospital she's fired she's demoted and we don't hear about lydia timoshuk although she writes many 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 more letters to soviet leaders uh some of whom have already been killed by stalin it's sort of amusing, but nevertheless, she writes letters and she gets no response from anybody. And she's she's left thinking that the whole system has collapsed. Uh, in 1953, when Stalin then, quote unquote, discovers the doctor's plot, he mysteriously finds this letter that she wrote on August 29th of 1948, and he holds it up and he says, you see, Abakumov withheld this letter from me. He never showed me that the doctors were mistreating Zhdanov. 
and then she becomes a hero. And her fate is like the inverse of what happened to Michlaz. And and so why is there that four-year wait, uh, five-year wait from 1948, where we have the notes, the notes, and then in 53, the Soviet news agency TASS makes the announcement that there are saboteur doctors participating in the killing of leading Soviet figures. So that's a beautiful question. And and a lot of people were always unable to answer this. But the reason is that the doctor's plot or Stalin's uh, strategy with respect to the Jews uh, that you first see with the assassination of Mikhoyls in January of 1948 is evolving. And initially, none of the doctors who treated Zhdanov were Jewish. That's kind of the joke of this. None was Jewish. The only doctor who treated Zhdanov was Sophia Karpai, uh, who, when she worked uh, in Valdai, he was still alive. And when she left, he was still alive. And she reported truthfully the results of the EKG. So there was no real case there. Uh, nothing that Stalin could build on, really. He couldn't accuse the Jews of murdering Kremlin leaders if none of the Jews were doctors. So how do you, how do you begin then to implicate Jewish doctors and why? I guess the question is why Jewish doctors? Well, partly because Jews were so eminent in the medical profession. Furthermore, Jewish doctors were everywhere in the Soviet Union. And to, to make this accusation against Jewish doctors was to, in effect, put a circle around almost the entire Jewish population of the Soviet Union. Uh, the medical profession was one in which they excelled. Uh, the legal profession was really not the same as it is in the United States. There undoubtedly were Jewish uh, Jewish lawyers, but they didn't have the same status uh, whatsoever in the Soviet Union. And so then you say, well, why not the physicists and the mathematicians? Ah, the reason is very simple. Stalin protected the Jewish physician, uh, uh, mathematicians and the physicists because he was building the atom bomb and he needed them. And this is a very important component of this story as well, that they were never touched uh, uh, or the majority were not. Uh, other scientists, of course, were in the biological sciences and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, through the medical profession, he was going to be able to encircle pretty much the whole Jewish population of the Soviet Union. So um, it then takes from 1948 to 1952, really, to build up the Jewish component of the doctor's plot. And this he was able to do, not through the death of Zhdanov, but through the death of another Soviet leader, Sherbakov, 
uh, who actually died in 1945, the day after uh, the day of victory in May of 1945. And his, and, and one of the doctors who was treating Sherbakov was Ettinger. That's, that's Yaakov. Yaakov uh... Ettinger, who had a national reputation and was, uh, had studied in the United States, studied in Germany, uh, and was considered one of the leading doctors in the Soviet Union. Um, and and is, is this where it's, it became a Jewish doctor's plot? It started with yeah. Edinger? Is that, that was the... Is where it it is. That's where it was. And then the, the job of the KGB, the NKVD, uh, and uh, Stalin's uh, henchman, so to speak, was to knit the the death of Zhdanov, who was uh, in in everybody knew Andrei Zhdanov. People had already forgotten about Sherbakov, but in nineteen in nineteen fifty two, they still remembered who Zhdanov was, and Yuri Zhdanov, his son, was still in the Central Committee. To knit these two together, to say that in effect Zhdanov also was murdered by Jewish doctors. But you can't say that since all of his doctors were Russians. They weren't Jews. Uh, uh, they were ethnic Russians or Ukrainians or whatever, but they were not Jewish. However, Ettinger provides a link. How? Sherbakov dies of a massive heart attack uh, in 1945, which there was nothing unusual about it. He had a heart condition. Uh, Ettinger had advised that he not go uh, to the celebrations in Moscow, but he defied that. He goes to the celebrations in Moscow for day of victory, and he dies the next day. Fine. He's dead. No problem. No doctor's plot. But now people are looking at that and they they begin the the process of investigating and an accusation is made that Ettinger aided in the death of Sherbakov. This is also important because at the time that Zhdanov was ill, the doctors in Valdai consulted with Ettinger. And so he wasn't directly involved, but he became a consultant to them. And so there was an indirect link and a direct link to Sherbakov. And in addition, Ettinger was a member of the, of, of the uh, Jewish anti-fascist committee. And uh, not really a, a a complete member of it, but he hung around. He was always there. He got the 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 Yiddish newspapers and so on and so forth. Anikite, and uh, and so he was a figure of some suspicion to Soviet intelligence, and they had bugged his house. And one of the things that they discovered in the bugging 
of his house was that he had made a variety of statements uh, uh, to his son uh, that Soviet leadership was deplorable and that um, it was uh, it was at, by 1950 uh, already anti-Israel and that he uh, he regretted this and he you know found it uh, unacceptable and so on that basis they thought of him as an enemy of the state and furthermore he could provide the link the link between Zhdanov and Sherbakov. Uh, unfortunately for Stalin and for the man who was interrogating him, uh, uh, a man by the name of Ruman, a real devil, uh, and I, I met in, in Moscow when I was working there, a man who actually had worked with Ruman, and he said he, everybody detested him. He was a hideous human being, a real Goebbels. Um, uh, he, he, he interrogated Ettinger so aggressively that Ettinger dies in prison. And so the case is lost. And so now they have to rebuild it again. So they then arrest Sophia Karpai because she's the only remaining Jew. <laughs> and, and Sophia Karpai, whose daughter I met when I gave a lecture about this in Israel, uh, lives in Israel. Uh, and I believe is still alive. Uh, uh, Sophia is one of the great heroines. I really believe this. So, and, and someone should write her, her biography. Someone should do a study of Sophia Karpai. But because as a young woman, she is tortured terribly. She is subjected to intense psychological uh, torture as well as physical. Uh, she is brought into interrogations with the man who had been her mentor, uh, Dr. Vinogradov, uh, had been her mentor at, at the university and a friend to her. And he, he in, in this face-to-face uh, -face encounter, accuses her of, of uh, changing the results of the EKG and misrepresenting them and so on and so forth. And she says, you are not telling the truth. And she refuses to lie. She refuses not to tell the truth. This is amazing. Her courage under this pressure was extraordinary. And they needed her to change her testimony in the worst possible way. And she refused. And at a certain point, Beria writes a note to Stalin. And he said, you know, this Karpai, she's impossible. I think we should, I think we should just shoot her because she, and, and move on. And Stalin sends a note back and he says, let her sit. Let her sit, thinking that maybe eventually she will become useful. But the fact that she refused to give this testimony over a period of some six months delayed the investigation. And when you think of the fact 
that Stalin dies in March of 1953, those six months were vital. They were vital because they saved the lives of many, many people. That delay alone. So in any case, they arrest Sofia Karpai. She goes nowhere with this. And then they are forced to start inventing all kinds of additional evidence. And at that point, Stalin is going berserk with this. And he meets with the head of the KGB uh, over and over again. Uh, he fires uh, Abakumov, uh, puts him in jail. Uh, he, you know, he promotes uh, a guy by the name of Ignatiev. Uh, and uh, just runs roughshod over him and he says, what is the matter with you? Why can't you get this testimony out of these doctors? Why do they refuse? Beat them, beat them, beat them, he says. Beat them with your fists. Get hard men and beat them. And this is what they then began to do. And, and, and they, 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 beat uh, Vinogradov, they, they, they uh, beat Vasilyenko, they beat Yegorov, uh, they beat them all until they just started saying whatever they wanted them to say. Uh, and at that point, then, yes, it was a Zionist conspiracy. Yes, we worked under the direction of Jews like Ettinger, who, who, with whom we consulted. Yes, there is a Jewish plot. And yes, the Jewish plot is really being run by the United States of America. And so that's how it began to develop. And eventually they arrest Amiron Vovsi, Mikhail's cousin. And the testimony that he gives is just unbelievable. <laughs> it didn't take, he was already an older man at, by the time. You know, he was, I, I think he was late 60s or 70s, which is old in the Soviet Union, and he really couldn't take it. And he just admitted almost immediately everything they wanted, that there was this huge plot. And they, they then ask him a question. They say, so you admit to the plot? Yes, I admit to the plot. Where is the center of the plot? Who is at the center of the plot? And they, he says something that even the interrogators can't really believe. He says, I am the center. You are the center. <laughs> In what way are you the center of the plot? Where is the plot? Name name the center of the plot. Anyway, it's a farce. But uh, they, they then arrested a, a number of Jewish doctors. Uh, they beat testimony out of them, as they did with Bobsi and others. And... And by 1952, it was ready. But um, well, well, what was Stalin's what was Stalin's end game here? I mean, was it mul multiple multiple goals here? Was it like absolutely multiple goals? Because those of those Western scholars, particularly Jewish scholars, who want to see this just as Stalin's anti-Semitism are not getting the right picture on this. 
yes, he was anti-Semitic, but don't forget his sis, his 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 daughter Svetlana married a Jewish guy, Grigory Morozov, and Stalin had a Jewish grandson who rose uh, to be quite eminent in in uh, his profession in the Soviet Union. Uh, you can't imagine such a thing if Hitler had a daughter, her marrying a Jewish guy. You know, you just can't imagine. So uh, his anti-Semitism was always much more transactional than, you know, deeply held, despite what Khrushchev had to say about it. And yes, of course, he was anti-Semitic, but, but he was anti-everything. The end game for Stalin was always political. Always. It was never simply ideological. It was never simply a matter of race hatred or ethnic or ethnic. And the political end game here was to attack the United States of America through the Jews and create a nuclear confrontation by 19, initially he wanted to do so in 1951, but because of Sophia Karpai, that became impossible. And, but by 1953, he absolutely, that was his absolute intention. And so the doctor's plot, even though it looks like on the inside, it is just about Jews. It really has to do with the, the, the fact that through the Jews, he was going to be able to develop a case against America. How do we know this? Because at the same time that the Jewish doctors are being arrested, he has arrested many Jewish members, uh, officers of the KGB. And these officers of the KGB provide the link to the United States of America. They too are part of the Zionist conspiracy. What is the Zionist conspiracy? The Zionist conspiracy is really, frankly, and it's, it's chilling to read this, it is taken directly out of the protocols of the elders of Zion. There is a worldwide Jewish conspiracy to dominate the world, but it is qualified in this case as a worldwide Jewish conspiracy in the interests of the United States of America. That's the way it is presented, and the testimony that is given by Brovermann and the testimony that is given by Schwarzman, uh, who are in the KGB, match perfectly and it is and and they are arrested in 1951 along with other uh, uh kgb uh, slash nkvd uh uh officers and all of the testimony that they have meshes and it is very clear that this was going to become a public trial at the same time that the doctors are going to be put on trial and 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 then in the public mind, the the public sphere, it is going to be seen as absolutely conclusive that the Jews 
of the Soviet Union are working in the interests of America and want to destroy Soviet leadership. So th this is not a, a, a geopolitical maneuver in the sense, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis, create a whole, try to create a new reality by putting in missiles, military, geopolitical. This is, this is more to create the internal support, the internal support that would enable him to make certain moves against America. That, that's how it fits in. See, he had to do that. Why? Because America and the Soviet Union were allies in the war against Hitler. Right. Many people in the Soviet Union, including Molotov, including other leaders, were rather favorably inclined toward the United States of America. And remember that Molotov's wife is Jewish. She, Zemchuzhina, in Moscow, has a brother living in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Oh, he owns gas stations in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And so the 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 linkage of of these uh, leaders, among whom uh, Molotov is the most notable example, and the general population that remembers Lend-Lease, that remembers FDR, that remembers you know all of the 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 enthusiasm about america that was generated the propaganda that was generated in favor of america and the allies fighting together all of that had to be overcome after the war molotov uh, gives an interview to the international herald tribune in which he said the leadership of the soviet union envisions a relaxation of censorship and a a uh, evolution into a more normal European country. This made Stalin go ballistic. And he writes to him, how dare you say from the South, because Stalin at that time was, was not in Moscow. He was recuperating from some unknown illness, probably a heart attack of some sort. But he writes to Molotov, how dare you say these things? Don't you understand that Churchill is our avowed enemy? That the United States of America is our, our, our geopolitical enemy, number one. And, and uh, so he had a big job. If Molotov could say that, what else are people thinking? And... And so, yes, he had to reorient the thinking of the people, get them out of that, the, the, the framework of thinking that the West is our friend. And this is the way to do it, by taking as an example a people, the Jews, who are identified with the West in so many different ways. It wouldn't have worked if they were the Crimean Tatars it wouldn't have worked if they were the Volga Germans. It wouldn't have worked if they were the Poles. It wouldn't have worked if he was going after Siberian peasants, you see. So it was the Jews. They were the most visible example. Right. What's the evidence to support the theory that one of Stalin's intentions might have been 
the mass displacement of Jews, potential, let's call them concentration camps, for lack of a, a better word. And, and, and were Soviet Russian Jews fearful of this at that point? There was massive fear of this, massive fear of this throughout the entire Jewish population. Uh, survivors of this today, the children who were children then in the 1950s, they remember it. I've spoken with many of them and they all speak about the dread that they lived under uh, that any day they were going to be deported. And uh, some scholars have poo-pooed this idea that it was all just made up, it was in their minds. But one of the things that Vladimir Naumov, and I want to mention him as the co-author of this book, uh, and my friend, uh, one of the, or a couple of the materials that he found working in the KGB archive were the orders to construct four new large concentration camps in the Far East. And, you know, this is 1953. The orders are given in, in um, I think, January. No, uh, I'm sorry, November and December 1952. Um, this is already six years, seven years almost uh, after the doctor's plot. I mean, after World War II. And the ostensible reason for these four new concentration camps is for very dangerous um, uh, Austrian fascists. The, 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 these are uh, technically different from the gulags. I mean, it, it sounds different from a gulag. No, they would have been the same. A concentration camp was Got a gulag. Got it. New okay. ones. And you could have taken all of the 9,000 or 10,000 uh, Austrian uh, prisoners of war, many of whom probably were SS, okay, but uh, there were many of them in the German government at that time too, reconstructed SS. And uh, you could have put them in two large, uh, you know, downtown apartment buildings in Moscow. You don't need four new gulags for this. And so uh, I believe that this gives really, you know, again, it didn't happen because Stalin died. So it, 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 it all has to be circumstantial evidence. But I believe that this is very powerful circumstantial evidence. So obviously Stalin dies, this potential catastrophe is, is averted. And now the new leadership um, throws it all out. There's no advantage for the new leadership to try to hang on to this web of intrigue and use it for their own interest, or was this totally well, anti-Stalin and that was the whole, the, the new approach? Uh, I think that the fact that the new leadership immediately repudiates the doctor's plot and does not go forward with these with these with these gulags, these concentration camps for these very dangerous Austrian SS. Uh, I think it's further evidence that this was for the Jews, that these camps were for the Jews, and uh, that the threat that the Jews posed was really invented by Stalin and the people working for him. 
And it also is evidence of the fact, something that Eisenhower did not recognize, even though Churchill had advised him to recognize it. Churchill writes him a note when, when Beria does this. Almost the day after, I mean, three or four weeks after Stalin dies, the whole, the whole plot is repudiated by the Soviet government. And Churchill writes Eisenhower a note and he says, please pay attention to the curious story of the doctors. I think they're trying to send a message to the West. And undoubtedly they were because there was a liberalizing, quasi-liberalizing, quote-unquote liberalizing, but certainly anti-Stalinist faction within the Soviet government. Beria was part of that. Khrushchev was part of that. And there were others. And they they were maneuvering at that point. But clearly, this was a sign that the Soviet Union was going to repudiate those policies. It would like to move closer, but it it got lost in the noise. Well, you, you had mentioned before we had started that um, uh, one can see um, in this, I don't know what the word is, the diabolical Stalin intrigue and web of intrigue, um, how it applies possibly to the current situation and who the heir of Stalin might be today. Can you just clarify that and what you meant by that? In my view, Hamas is one of the heirs because it employs uh, Soviet anti-Zionist propaganda uh, that uh, propaganda against uh, Israel that developed exactly at the time of the doctor's plot. Zionism is racism, Zionism is imperialism, etc. And it is joined with the genocidal Nazi propaganda against the Jews that was pumped in to the Middle East by the Nazis through the Mufti of Cairo. And uh, uh, and from there spread throughout the Arab world. And you see, you see the prevalence of this Nazi propaganda in the way that Jews are depicted in Arab media, the what what is taught about the Jews, and so on and so forth. It is pure Nazi propaganda. It doesn't come out of Islam. But the the other component of this is Islamic fundamentalism. So it's these three things that have come together. And I I personally believe that Hamas is the representative of this today. That's what we have to look at today. Well, again, this has been absolutely fascinating and we can only hope and we can pray that um, just as um, the doctor's plot was cut short and didn't come to pass with the death of Stalin, that um, history will repeat itself um, in, in our times as well. And and that's really our hope and prayer and, uh, you know, the, the guiding hand of history as, as we believe um, 
is watching us and, um, you know, without getting into the religious and political overtones of that. But again, uh, Professor Brent, this has been absolutely fascinating. Stalin's last crime, the doctor's plot, and uh, urge all our uh, listeners and viewers um, to uh, purchase the book. And you'll find it absolutely fascinating. And again, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very, very much. I add one last word. Please, please. Follow on what you just said. Stalin died on Purim. On that important. Yes. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much again.